This morning, we're going to be looking at 1 Corinthians 13 again, and this is the fifth and final message that we're doing on this passage. I think we started back um, before the pandemic, uh, it seems like, or some years ago that uh, we've been going through this, and this will be the last in this series on secrets to a successful marriage as well, the 10th in that series and final one. And as we've seen, as we moved along, that as we get to these principles of love and love for one another, uh, the importance of it in marriage, but certainly the importance of love in every relationship in your life. So the application to 1 Corinthians 13, in fact, wasn't even directed towards marriage relationships. It was towards every relationship. And we spent a fair amount of time, the first time we looked at the beginning of 1 Corinthians 13, uh, looking at the context. And we looked at the, discussed how the book of 1 Corinthians, a, Paul, a letter from Paul to the church in Corinth, to address a number of issues that were in the church there in Corinth. And to put it mildly, uh, this was a church with problems. It had a lot of issues going on there. And many of these issues centered around divisions and disorder in the church. Lots of divisions, uh, people wanting to uh, create factions. Uh, who were they going to be loyal to? And disorder on how things ran. And there was tolerated sin in the church. There were lawsuits against one another. There were all kinds of problems going on. And Paul wanted to address these in his letter to that church. And one of the issues that he needed to speak of was in regard to spiritual gifts. There was problems of both disorder and division in regard to spiritual gifts as well. And the division came because the more outwardly impressive gifts, gifts like tongues, were thought to be more important than other gifts. And people were vying to have these more showy gifts. And so everyone wanted to get the attention. So Paul addresses this issue in chapters 12 to 14, and he did that in a number of ways. The solution given in these chapters included, included the need for unity, that, look, we have the same Holy Spirit, we are all one body in Christ. And so part of the address, uh, solution to this issue of disorder and spiritual gifts was to recognize the unity that they had. He also talked about the importance of every member of the church, that the eye can't say to the ear, I have no need of you, or the ear say to the eye, I don't need you. So he spent some time on how every member of the church is important. And he also spoke for a while about the proper use of spiritual gifts, that there had to be interpretation. It had to be done orderly. It couldn't be chaos. And those were all parts of the answer to this issue of spiritual gifts, but there is one answer that he spends the most time on. And this goes really to the core of addressing this problem. And he introduces that in 1 Corinthians 12, 31. And he says, I will show you a still more excellent way. I will show you a still more excellent way. And he says that at the end of chapter 12, if you have your scriptures there, you'll see that right before he goes into chapter 13. In chapter 13, he's going to address, what is this more excellent way? How do we solve this conflict, the, this, these divisions, this disorder in the church? Well, it comes down to really one word. It's love. He says the real solution is love. These others are parts of the solution, but I'm going to spend the most time, in fact, puts it right in the center of his whole discussion to talk about love and the importance of it. Love is the solution to the issues there in that church. And I don't think it's overstating it to say that love is the solution to issues that you're having in your marriage, in your home, in other relationships. When we think of all the counsel to give to married couples, and there is certainly a lot of things to work through and talk through, but it comes down to some major core foundational principles. One is to understand how important the marriage relationship is, that it's a unique union between a husband and a wife. Secondly, it's to understand the roles in the marriage relationship. We need to understand what's the role of the husband, what's the role in the wife. And then the third is, live like a Christian. 
I mean, it really comes down to those three things. Live like a Christian, and it, most importantly, live a loving, in a loving way toward your spouse. And as we walk through 1 Corinthians 13, we see what that means and what that looks like. And it's love as it's described here in Scripture. And to say that love is a solution, I think even the Beatles have a song, All You Need Is Love. Um, I'm not going to sing that um, for you. You'll be happy to know. Um, but they're, they're not using the right definition of love. They're not using 1 Corinthians 13. But if we look at the real definition of love, we can say, you know what? If we do have love, that will solve so many issues. This isn't love as just physical attraction, admiring someone's beauty or romantic feelings uh, towards somebody. It's not even saying, I, I need that person. I can't live without them. Um, or it's not just saying loving words. All these are fine things, but it's not the full description that Paul gives in 1 Corinthians 13. And that's the love that will solve these issues, not only for the Corinthian church, but will solve issues in your marriages, will solve issues in your families, and between all those that you have relationships with. And so we need to understand what Paul is talking about when he says that love is the solution. And so we first looked at the first three verses of 1 Corinthians 13, and in those first three verses, Paul made it very clear the necessity of love, that you must have love, that all these other actions, all the other good things you do, if they're not from a heart of love, they're unimportant. And then in verses 4 to 7, he'll describe these things. And so that's what we've been spending some time on, especially. It's verses 4 to 7 of 1 Corinthians 13. So we're going to take one more look at that today. And these descriptions, 15 descriptions of love here and really 15 actions of love, and particularly focusing today on the last six that we haven't looked at yet. So let's read this together, 1 Corinthians 13, 4-7. Love is patient, love is kind, and is not jealous. Love does not brag and is not arrogant. Love does not act unbecomingly. It does not seek its own, is not provoked, does not take into account a wrong suffered, does not rejoice in unrighteousness, but rejoices with the truth, bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. As we look at these last descriptions, we remember, as I said, that there are 15, 15 descriptions of love here. And these are all presented to us as verbs. And what does that tell us? It tells us that it's not just a feeling and that love isn't just something, uh, an adjective you describe, but love results in actions and love will show itself in our lives. So up till now, we looked the first time at love is patient and love is kind. And we've also looked at things that love is not, ways that love doesn't behave. Love is not jealous, boastful, arrogant, unbecoming, selfish, easily provoked or resentful. Today, we're going to look at the last ones here, that love both refuses to rejoice over unrighteousness, and then the other side is rejoices with the truth, and then love's persistence. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. So we spent three weeks on those first nine. Now I'm going to try and cover these last six in one week. So we're going to go a little bit quicker today through these. But uh, I think you'll find that, uh, that we can get into these to, to enough to understand them and make sure we apply them in our lives today. And that's what it really comes down to. You're going to say, well, another message on love. I think I got this. Well, yeah, I think, you, I think you probably got it as far as understanding it, but it's practicing it, living it out. So as we look at these last six, continue to evaluate your own heart. Continue to evaluate your own life. Do, how do I measure up with this? How do I measure up with this description given to us in Scripture? And how do I measure up with the love that Christ has shown as he has perfectly demonstrated all these attributes of love? So let's look into it here. We're looking at number 10 in our list. Love does not rejoice in unrighteousness. Love does not rejoice in unrighteousness. 
To rejoice means, as you would expect, to be glad in, to find delight in, find joy in. Unrighteousness is any wrongdoing, wickedness, or injustice. So we're reminded of here that love finds no joy in wickedness of any kind. When evil is committed around us, there should be sadness. And even at times, righteous anger, but certainly not rejoicing. Now, when we look at the world around us, we can say, yes, I I see this in the world around us. This happens all the time, that there is rejoicing in sin. And we shouldn't be surprised at that. Romans 1 told us that was going to be the case. Those who rejected God. In Romans 1, 20 to 32, it says, And just as they did not see fit to acknowledge God any longer, God gave them over to a depraved mind to do those things which are not proper, being filled with unrighteousness, wickedness, greed, evil, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, malice, they are gossips, slanders, haters of God, insolent, arrogant, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, without understanding, untrustworthy, unloving, unmerciful, and although they know the ordinance of God, that those who practice such things are worthy of death, they not only do the same, but they give hearty approval to those who practice them. And it's that last phrase there. They not only do these things, but they give hearty approval to those who practice them. And we see that in our culture, don't we? Certainly it's not just that a a sense of shame has been taken away for all kinds of sins, particularly the most glaring is, is all the sins of sexual sins, and perversions around today, but there are pride months for it, and pride flags, and pride for every variation that uh, you can think of under the sun. And it shows us that the world around us does what Romans 1 told us, exactly what was going to happen. That this deviancy is not only tolerated, that it's applauded in our world today. Now, we may wonder why. Why is, why do people, why does the world rejoice in unrighteousness? Isn't it clear that there's negative consequences that come with so many of these things? Why do people rejoice when wrong is done? Well, I think we find at least part of the answer in the Gospel of John. Jesus is speaking with Nicodemus, and he says this, this is the judgment that light has come in the world, and men love the darkness rather than the light, for their deeds were evil. For everyone who does evil hates the light and does not come to the light for fear that his deeds will be exposed. Why does the world give hearty approval to evil in the world? Well, because they have their own shame of what they have done. And if they can say, look, look at this evil going on, then what I'm doing isn't bad. It's not wrong. This is Everyone's giving approval of this. You know, it's not enough anymore to not give approval. To give approval. You're supposed to celebrate the sin. And if you don't, then you're seen as uh, prejudiced in some way. Or they, they label it with a phobic. You're transphobic, homophobic, something phobic. Um, and that they want to give approval. Well, the world gives approval because their own deeds are evil. And they want to lessen the shame that they have from from their own deeds. And they realize this. They rejoice because their own deeds are not as shameful and feelings of guilt can be alleviated when your own sinful acts are viewed by society as normal. And we see this all around us. It's a game of comparison. And everyone likes to compare to someone else. Well, they're doing this. What I'm doing is not so bad because this other thing is going on, and I'm not as bad as others. When I used to work for the city of Burbank, uh, we had a consultant that uh, helped us with some projects, and I enjoyed having conversations with him. He came from a Roman Catholic background, and he, as we were having lunch one day over at what used to be Elephant Bar, which I'm so sad that went out of business. Elephant Bar was a good restaurant, wasn't it? Anyway, we were having lunch at Elephant Bar, and uh, 
in the news at that time, and this had to be at least 10 years ago, maybe 12 years ago, he was some prominent Christian leader had sinned, and it hit the paper. So I don't remember who that was at the time. But he expressed to me how he loved reading stories like this. Oh, he, was, he just enjoyed that so much. When someone who's going around telling people how to live, and he falls, how happy that made him to see that these people who were preaching were ones that fell into sin. And, and I understand a little bit why he was saying that. I, in one of our conversations another time, I was sharing about my firstborn, and uh, he was born 10 months after we were married. And so I'm explaining to him, yeah, I always have to tell, you know, in the early days, I had to do the math for people. Okay, you know, there's enough months, it works. And he's like, oh, yeah, my son was born a month after we were married. <laughs> so my little story of math wasn't too funny to him. Um, but if these other people are doing sinful things, then he's not so bad. If other people are doing that, then he can feel better about himself. Now, perhaps at this point, you may feel comfortable like, yep, that's what the world does, is uh, they rejoice in these things, but you'd never catch me doing that. But before you get too comfortable, I think we have to examine ourselves, and there's questions to ask ourselves in this regard. How about when someone who's been critical of you Maybe it's at your workplace or a family member is caught doing something unethical. Does part of you take any pleasure in that, that they've done something wrong and been caught when they've been a, one, a person that's been so critical of you? Do you enjoy reading of scandalous sins in the media? Does that pique your interest? Hey, what's going on with these people? Someone being caught in adultery or committing a crime. Is that entertainment for you? That's a way you may rejoice in unrighteousness. Or do you enjoy a sense of superiority over another because you have not failed as he or she has? And I think if we examine ourselves, we could find at times perhaps we have given in to this, and part of us, out of our own pride, doesn't mind seeing another person fall. Because, hey, if they fell, then I'm not so bad. But we are reminded, we are not to do this. We are not to rejoice in unrighteousness. And it is contrary to love to rejoice in unrighteousness. It is completely antithetical to love. And why is that? Well, it's antithetical to love because, sins, because of the consequences that sin brings on the one who sins. If we love somebody and they sin, we know that bad things are going to come to them. Because Proverbs tells us, the way of the treacherous is hard. When you sin, there will be negative consequences to sin in your life. Not immediately, not always immediately. Sometimes the consequences come quick, but sometimes it takes a while. But the reality is that sin brings negative consequences in your life. Satan hides those. He certainly, when he baits the hook, he, you don't see those consequences, but the hook is there. If you love someone, you're never going to want to see those consequences happen to them. So you do not want them to be unrighteous. You do not want them to fall into sin. And if we love others, we and understand sin's consequence on the people around the one who sins, we'll never want other people to fall into unrighteousness. Sin doesn't just affect the one who sins. It certainly does that, but it affects those around as well whether those are family members or all acquaintances. It's contrary to love because we know of sin's consequences on the one who sins and the consequences of those around him. And third, we know of sin's consequences on our Savior. It's because of sin that Christ went to the cross. If there is nothing else that should make you hate sin and hate sin in others' lives as well as your own, it's because you know what sin has done to Christ. Because you know the suffering he, he endured on the cross. And we speak much of the suffering, of the physical suffering he endured. The crown of thorns, the lashes, 
the nails and the hands and the feet, and those are suffering. But taking on the sin of the world is a suffering that was even beyond those physical things. And that was our sin that was on the cross, and it was other sins, and therefore we should never rejoice in unrighteousness. It's contrary to love in every way. So love does not rejoice in unrighteousness. Now often when we've looked at what love is not, we've said, well, what's, what do we put on? That's the put off, what do we put on? Well, in this case, the very next phrase tells us what the opposite is. Instead of rejoicing in unrighteousness, we're to rejoice in the truth. And to rejoice means just that, to take pleasure in, to joyfully celebrate. And the word truth is one that we see throughout the New Testament, always translated that. And at first glance, we may say, wait a minute, there's not totally the other side of the coin, because it says, do not rejoice in unrighteousness, but rejoice in the truth. Shouldn't we say, rejoice in righteousness? You would imagine that would be the exact opposite, rejoice in righteousness. And so the question goes, well, why is truth and unrighteousness? Why are those seen as opposites here? And so we can look at other places. This isn't the only time in Scripture that this happens. In 2 Thessalonians, we see the same contrast between unrighteousness and truth, or in this case, wickedness. 2 Thessalonians 2, 11-12 says, For this reason God will send upon them a deluding influence, so that they will believe what is false, in order that all may be judged, who did not believe the truth, but took pleasure in wickedness. This is during the end times, and we'll see the those who do not believe in the truth take pleasure in wickedness, and the contrast between truth and wickedness. We see it again in Romans 2, 5-8. Those who practice sin, Paul says, because of your stubbornness and unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself in the day of wrath and revelation according to the righteous judgment of God, who will render to each person according to his deeds. To those who by perseverance in doing good seek for glory and honor and immortality, eternal life. But to those who are selfishly ambitious and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, wrath, and indignation. There's a contrast for those who obey the truth and who obey unrighteousness. And what we see here is the truth that's contrasted with unrighteousness means this is the truth of the gospel and all of its implications. It's not just truth, generally speaking, but gospel truth and all that gospel truth means. And gospel truth, yes, is salvation by faith, but resulting in righteous living and resulting in a change of heart and a change of life. So it's completely appropriate to contrast truth with unrighteousness because the truth comes with righteousness. That is part of what the truth is. And so when we say we are to rejoice with the truth, we are to rejoice in gospel truth and all that that means in seeing others follow gospel truth and live out gospel truth. Now, a bad example in this case we can think of in the Old Testament is Jonah. Jonah, as you know, he was sent to the Ninevites to proclaim the gospel to them, to tell them about God and to repent of their sin, but he didn't want to go. He wasn't interested in going. He'd rather catch a ship in the other direction because he didn't want them to become saved. It wasn't just that Jonah didn't like the Ninevites. It wasn't that he was afraid, I'm going to proclaim judgment, and then God is going to bring all this wrath upon them. No, he was afraid that he was going to preach to them, and they were actually going to repent. That was Jonah's fear, was to see the Ninevites actually come to faith, and God relent in his judgment upon them. And he knew that God was a merciful God. And so he failed to love in this way. It says in Jonah 3, verse 10 through 4.1, he says, When God saw their deeds, that they had turned from their wicked way, then God relented concerning the calamity which he had declared he would bring upon them, and he did not do it. And then chapter 4, verse 1, and it greatly displeased Jonah, and he became angry. 
He did not rejoice in the truth. He did not rejoice in the fact that people were repenting and coming to faith because there was no love in Jonah for the Ninevites. They were seen as the enemy. And he would rather God bring wrath on them than to see them come in faith, come to faith and come to know him. And we may see the world around us and think, you know what, I want to see a little bit of wrath of God on these people. I'm ready. I'm ready for that to happen, the way they've mocked Christianity. It's time for God to bring it down. But love does not do that. Love desires to see people repent and come to know the truth. And we need to examine ourselves. Are we gladdened in any way by the failure of those who have hurt us? Or do you long to see them walk in the joy of the Lord? What is your desire for those who have said such negative things? Perhaps about you, perhaps about Christ. Are you wanting judgment or would you most of all love to see their repentance? Love rejoices with the truth. And a very good practical test of this is gossip. Do you speak or listen to gossip? Where there is sin going on, other people are doing things that are wrong, that's where gossip can thrive. Hey, this is an opportunity to say, hey, do you know what so-and-so did? Do you know what happened? Do you, did you hear what uh, happened in their lives or in their marriage? When others do well, well, where does the gossip go? It, it fades away. If you participate in gossip, whether, again, whether that is speaking to others about something you know that's slanderous, or whether it's listening to it, it's showing that you in some way are not rejoicing with the truth and rejoicing in what is good and holy, but you're somehow finding pleasure in listening to something that is unrighteousness. So the next time we're there's a piece of gossip that comes to you that someone comes and say, hey, did you hear about whoever? Turn the conversation. Hey, what can you praise about that person? Or what can you thank God for? What grace in that person's life can you point to? Do you rejoice in the truth? Is it more easy to catch you talking about someone else's successes in Christ or to catch you talking about other people's failures? We need to be people rejoicing in the truth, rejoicing in what God's doing in their life. That shows a love for them. So we see here these contrasting things that love both does not rejoice in unrighteousness, but rejoices with the truth. And now we're going to look at the last four in verse 7. These last four verbs, the last four aspects of love, and they go together. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Well, you don't have to be a seminary graduate to see uh, something repeated multiple times in that verse, do you? All things, all things is mentioned many times there. And that means all or every or continually. And we're reminded here that love is without limits, that love persist, that there's not an end to love. And these words are repeated with great rhetorical effect. And it's a very fitting way to conclude this section, this description of love that Paul gives. Now you may look down and say, wait a minute, there's another thing in verse 8, uh, love never fails, and then it goes on to talk about love at the end of chapter 13 as well. And that's true. Paul continues talking about love and it's interaction with spiritual gifts. But there is a grammatical break here between 7 and 8, so where he's going to start pressing into the permanence of love versus some spiritual gifts. This here at the end of 7 is how he really wraps up his description and his definition of love. And not just his, but obviously the Holy Spirit and what the Holy Spirit wants us to know. So we see here four attributes of love's persistence. So let's look at these. First, love bears all things. To bear to, can mean to cover, to put up, or, or to endure. And the word actually comes from the word for roof. So the Greek word comes from the word for roof. And 
Sometimes the scripture translates this as endure when it's used as a verb or to bear something. And it depends on the context. And so in that, this is a verb without a ton of context besides the other descriptions of love. There is some debate on should it have more of the meaning of to cover or more of the meaning to endure. Now we see an example how he used it in the case of endure in 1 Corinthians 9. But I think what we'll find is that both, both descriptions are not that far apart from each other. And we can really see both of these in this verb. That love covers or puts up with the difficulties or failures of others. In 1 Corinthians 9, the word endure is how it's translated. He says, if others share the right over you, and in this case it's to receive wages to be paid as a minister, Paul says, do we not more? Nevertheless, we did not use this right, but we endure all things so that we will cause no hindrance to the gospel of Christ. And so we see not only the verb being used there, but also the all things being used just earlier in 1 Corinthians 9. And that Paul endured all things because he was willing to put up with long hours of work instead of receiving money from them, and all kinds of hardship. And he was willing to endure that so that they would come to the knowledge of the truth, that people would come to a saving knowledge of Christ and grow in maturity of him. And that really shows Paul's love for them, for them and that he would endure all these different things. So love puts up, it endures, and it bears all things for the sake of others. And in that, we can see that it even puts up with others' failures or others' sins that they may commit against you. Love, as Scripture says, covers sin and overlooks the offenses in others' life. And that's a hard thing to do. It's a hard thing to say, you know what, I'm not going to make a huge deal out of what you've done, but I'm going to overlook it. But Scripture reminds us that this is what love does, over and over again. Proverbs 10, 12. Hatred stirs up strife, but love covers all transgressions. Love is willing to overlook. Proverbs 17, 9. He who conceals a transgression seeks love, but he who repeats a matter separates intimate friends. Love is willing to put up with the sin and in fact even covers it. And in 1 Peter 4, 8, the same idea is given. Above all, keep fervent in your love from one another because love covers a multitude of sins. Love is willing to overlook what others may have done to you. And as one commentator put it, love throws a cloak of silence over what is displeasing in another person. Love throws a cloak of silence over them. And you know, a lot of fantasy movies have this invisibility cloak. It's a common device used, I think it's in Lord of the Rings and other novels. And it's just such a fun thing to think of. I think even as a kid, I wanted to think my blanket would hide me. Or little kids think they're hiding from others by putting a blanket over them. Um, we enjoy watching AFV and, you know, little kids who do those things are always cute. These blankets, like you can hide things. Well, if you love, sometimes you will throw that over someone else's faults. You'll take that cloak of silence or invisibility cloak and say, you know what, I'm not going to make a big deal about this. I'm not certainly not going to tell others and slander that person. Now, we may say, okay, does love cover all sin then? Or what about rebuking sin? Doesn't Scripture also say that there are times when sin must be rebuked? And yes, that is true. Um, Luke 17, 3. Be on your guard. If your brother sins, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. In Titus 9, speaking of elders, they need to be able to both exhort in sound doctrine and refuse those who contradict. So yeah, there are times when sin must be rebuked. You can't cover every sin. You can't always throw a cloak of silence. Now, how do you know then? When am I supposed to do this bear all things and uh, cover a multitude of sins? And when am I supposed to rebuke? That's that's a difficult question. That definitely takes some wisdom. 
And there's a lot of things go into it, but most importantly is ask yourself this. Am I confronting this sin, rebuking this brother, or even bringing this up for my own good or for the good of the other person? Am I pointing this sin out because I want to really put this guy in his place and I want to show him, look, who's in charge here and I'm better than you? Or are you doing it because you care about that brother? Are you doing it almost reluctantly saying, you know what, I, I need to rebuke this sin for your benefit and for God's glory? And there are times we need to do that. When we see patterns of sin, when we see issues of sin, we, we need to rebuke them, but it's never for our own good. It must be for the good of the other person. That is love, is when we're doing it to build that person up. And if we do that, we can truly help someone. Proverbs 27, 5 to 6 says, Better is open rebuke than love that is concealed. Faithful are the wounds of a friend, but deceitful are the kisses of an enemy. And sometimes rebuke is the most loving thing you can do if it is for their better. Even this morning during communion, we had to take the next step, Matthew 18 step, on a couple individuals. And we were praying for them in elders' prayer prior to that. And it was said, like, look, this is the most loving thing we can do for them at this point is to call them to repentance in a very serious way. And hopefully that this will jar them so they can get out of the life of destruction that they're heading down right now. And many times we need to do that, but if it's all about self-preservation, self protection or self-advancement, then love bears all things. If it is protecting self and making yourself feel better, then love bears all things. It does not rebuke. And rebuking is done only for the other person's benefit. Next, we see that love believes all things. To believe or to trust, very common word in the New Testament there. Now, when we first read this attribute of love, love believes all things, we think, okay, well, that means we're supposed to be naive or gullible in everything. Um, there was a, a movie made that a friend of mine recommended. I won't mention his name to not embarrass him. But Mark Borisic said I should... <laughs> well, I said the name. <laughs> said I should see this Cinderella movie. It's a remake of Cinderella. It's embarrassing I have to men- mention his name, but... At the very beginning of the movie, it just killed me. It, it was Cinderella talking to her mom and saying, you know, animals can understand us and we can speak to animals. And, and Cinderella, oh, really? And, and there's fairy godmothers. And Cinderella asks, do you believe these things? And her mom says, I believe in everything. <laughs> Cinderella says, I believe in everything too. And that... Uh, <laughs> That was it for that movie, brothers. I just had to laugh out loud. Is that what we're saying here? Oh, love believes in everything. I assure animals talk and fairy godmothers. I believe in everything. No, that is not, uh, not what Paul is saying here, that you just are gullible or naive. And Scripture says a lot about not being a naive person. Proverbs fourteen fifteen: the naive believes everything, but the sensible man considers his steps. Or Proverbs 22.3, the prudent sees the evil and hides himself, but the naive go on and are punished for it. And not only in Proverbs, but in the New Testament, we're not to be children tossed here and there by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men, by craftiness and deceitful scheming. We're not to be so simple-minded. But instead, in 1 Thessalonians, we're reminded to examine everything carefully and hold on to what is good. So if that's not what this is saying, it's not to uh, walk around like Cinderella and say, I believe in everything. Uh, What does this mean? What are we to believe about others in this believing all things? Well, it comes down to this. We need to believe the best about others' motives. Believe the best about what you can't see. Love is not cynical and does not constantly doubt others and be suspicious of their motives. 
we can't judge others' motives. We don't know what's in their heart. We can know what we see, and we can bring that before them, but we can't judge. We need to believe the best about people and that their motives are the best. Now, this is hard to do in a lot of ways because why? Because we know our own sinful motives. I know if I did that thing, I know I would probably have bad motives. And if you really examine your heart and know yourself well, you'll know that many times you have a mix of motives. Perhaps there's good motive, but there is a taint of bad motive in there as well. Even something simple uh, as giving your seat up for somebody else. Oh, I'm doing that because I want to serve them. And I kind of hope somebody notices what I'm doing. (laughs) You know, that there's always a, a little bit of sinful motive in our own hearts. And we need to remember that and to know that. And I think that is the heart of humility in a lot of ways, is recognizing our own mix of motives and even sinful motives at times. And a quote that I appreciate by John Bunyan, he understood this. He understood some of the sinful motives in his own heart. He said, the best prayer I ever prayed had enough sin to damn the whole world. It was John Bunyan too, a godly man. But he recognized even sin in his own heart and how he needed to be ruthless with sin in his own life. And he recognized that. And that's what we should do to ourselves, but not to others. To others, we need to trust their motives and believe all things. So no one repent of your own sinful motives, but believe the best that's in the heart of others. Believe all things. Next, love hopes all things, an expectation or trust is what that has. And just like the last one, this doesn't mean I just hope everything goes well and I'm just so hopeful. And it's not a a false hope, a hope that has no basis. Uh, You can imagine uh, the story of Job. And Job first loses his flocks and his friends go, it can't get worse than this, Job. Just hang in there, have hope. Things will get better. Uh, If one did so, they would be profoundly wrong because things did get a whole lot worse. That's a false hope that the world might give. And and I've heard people give that. Someone comes with problems and just, hey, well, things will get better. Brighten up. Tomorrow's another day. Um, That's not the kind of hope. We don't want to give a false hope or have a false hope, but a real hope. There is a real hope that we can have. And where does that real hope come from? It doesn't come from wishful thinking. Real hope is based on the character and the promises of God. And what God can do in that other person's life. You may be critical of another person or see the flaws in another person, but do you have hope that God can take that person and cause them to grow and do something miraculous in that person's life? I think it's easy to put someone in a corner and say, okay, I know what they've done. I know a wrong thing they've done. And you've written that person off. But love continues to hope. Love continues to reach out and care for that person because you know what? God can make a change in that person's life. No one is beyond what God can do in their life. And Paul saw this with the Corinthian believers. And he prayed for them in the beginning of the book. I thank my God always concerning you. And oh, with the problems they had, that would be hard to say. But he can say that, that he thanks God always concerning them. And he goes on to say why. He says, awaiting eagerly the revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will confirm you to the end, blameless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful, through whom you were called into fellowship with his son, Jesus Christ our Lord. Paul had hope. He showed this exact hope of love hopes all things for the believers there because he knew God was faithful and he knew God was continuing to work in their lives. And the love you need to have for others that hopes all things is to realize God is still working in them and that you are not to give up before God does and God isn't done with that person yet. 
Paul showed the same confidence in writing to the Philippian believers. I'm confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will perfect it to the day of Christ Jesus. Love persists in hope because of who God is and because of what God can do. So practically, love hopes that a child who has walked away from the faith can one day repent because God can do that work in that child's heart. And I have definitely seen that happen. One family that I know where the daughter walked away and denied Christ, said some very cruel things, and yet the parents continued in hope and prayer for that child, and now she's with them again and walking with Christ. Love hopes that a husband who has a long history of sinful and selfish behavior can be changed by God into a faithful and godly man. Love doesn't give up on your spouse, no matter what they've done, because God can continue to change them. Love hopes that a marriage that has been continually rocky can be redeemed by God to be one that is healthy and joyful. Love hopes all things. That means you believe that God can continue to do the work. Well, we have one more, and I want to make sure we cover it. Love endures all things. Number 15 in our list here, to endure, to hold out, to persevere. The meaning is that in every circumstance, whether there's pain, suffering, loss, love holds fast to those it loves. Love never stops loving. And we see the same terms here, enduring all things, in 2 Timothy 2, as Paul writes to Timothy, he says, Remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, descendant of David, according to my gospel, for which I suffer hardship, even to imprisonment as a criminal. But the word of God is not imprisoned. For this reason, I endure all things for the sake of those who are chosen, so that they may obtain the salvation which is in Christ Jesus, and with it eternal glory. Paul says, I endure all things. He doesn't mention much here about his hardships. But in 2 Corinthians 6, you can read about the kind of hardships he endured. He says, in endurance, afflictions, hardships, distresses, beatings, imprisonments, tumults, labors, sleeplessness, hunger. There's a lot of things that Paul went through. He did it because he loved the people to whom he was ministering. And he loved his Savior enough to continue to press on and endure those things. And that's what love does. It endures through the difficult times. It endures through the hardships. It endures even when hard things are done against it. And there are times in marriage where it seems hard to endure. I, I will be happier outside this marriage that this is too difficult, or if a spouse gets ill or something happens, that how can I endure that? But love endures. Promises are made, and promises need to be kept. And it reminded me of the story of Robertson McQuilkin. And I'm not sure if you have heard of Robertson McQuilkin. He wrote a number of books, including a book called Understanding and Applying the Bible, a hermeneutics book that, uh, that was translated into Chinese. Uh, Mark Borsick oversaw that project, so i got to say something nice about him after making fun of him earlier, but uh, a great book on hermeneutics and other books on missions. And he was actually president of Columbia International University for 22 years, a faithful man of God. But back in 1990, while president, Robertson McWilkin's wife came down with Alzheimer's and pretty severe symptoms of Alzheimer's. And he had a choice to make, what to do, and it, he said, I'm going to relinquish my position as president. I'm stepping down and took care of his wife for the next 13 years of her life just to care for her. He realized how important his commitment was to her and his love toward her. And some were surprised, but he said this. He said, I promise in sickness and in health till death do his part. And I'm a man of my word. And there's a book written about that, A Promise Kept and you know, that's a pretty big thing when a guy like that who has such influence and is an important guy says, you know what? Love endures all things and my marriage is going to endure this and I'm going to stick by my wife's side through this. And he was faithful in that 
in having that kind of love that Scripture speaks about here, a love that endures to the end. And you may wonder, all these things that uh, we've talked about in love, these 15 things, and maybe even especially this last one, enduring and enduring some perhaps very difficult times. How can that be possible in your own life? Well, without Christ, I don't know if it is. Um, I don't know what the divorce rate is now, but it's not a good number. And it's not surprising because without Christ... How can you look to strength for this? To endure, to be patient, to be kind, to not be provoked, to believe all things, believing the best about others. But with Christ, it is possible. With Christ, you can endure and you can love in these ways to the very end. And we can do this as believers, because Christ has given us the heart to be able to do that. He's regenerated us. He's made us a new man in him. And it's because of Christ's love for us and his perfect example and work in us that we can do all these descriptions of love. And we can fulfill this. And we can be reminded in Hebrews 12, 2-3, that we are to fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. For consider him who has endured such hostility by sinners against himself, that you will not grow weary and lose heart. Christ has endured. He endured so much against him frankly, by us in our own sin. And yet he endured in love toward us, endured all the way to the cross. And when we ever grow tired and feel like, okay, all these commands of love, it's too much. Look to our Savior, remember his love, and remember that he has given you the strength to do that and the ability to love like he has commanded us to. Let's pray together. Father, were it not for grace, were it not for what you have done in our lives, we would find it not only difficult but impossible to love in these ways that have been described. To be so selfless in love in each of these ways. To to put others above our own desires and preferences. But Lord, we thank you that because of Christ, Lord, you have given us that possibility. So may we always be turning to you for our strength, always turning to you, God, for confession when we fail, and thankful that your love for us never ends. And that we can go forward in confidence in your love for us so that we might demonstrate that love toward others. God, we praise you and thank you. In the name of Christ, amen.